Okay, welcome back to the Think Education podcast. Uh, I'm joined today by a colleague of mine, uh, Hugh Martin, Registrar at the British University in Dubai. Uh, this is a podcast that we've been talking about for a very long time, which of course means, given that we work in the same building, we've waited as, as long as possible to, to actually do this. Um, Hugh, just to give his brief bio, because it's not a typical bio, I think, for some other registrars um, uh, that I've uh, come across. Hugh graduated from the University of Oxford. That that might be more typical, perhaps, but I think less so. Um, BA ons and MA ons in English language and literature, followed by an MLit in creative writing from University of St Andrews. Um, and we were just talking about his PhD in in rhetoric and writing. Um, Hugh's worked in higher education, senior management for over twenty years, including um, University of Bedfordshire. LSE, Bristol and St Andrews and as I said currently based here in Dubai in the British University. Um, What I find both strange and really interesting is that Hugh's also a poet and that's got to be, that's got to be, uh, if not unique, you've got to be in a small minority, right, of people within your world that are also in occupying another world. do you, do you, I was going to say, do you have registrar friends that are also poets? That seems yeah, a really weird thing to say. No, well, it's a good question actually about poets. I'm not sure, I probably should know more, but it's not actually as surprising as you think in terms of registrars that have other careers. And certainly, I mean, for example, uh, one of my good colleagues, uh, Paul Greatrix, who's the registrar at Nottingham, um, is well known, weirdly, for his own podcast. It, it's it's you know, very specific to kind of admin and, and leaders of university uh, administrations, but it shouldn't, but perhaps does surprise some people in and outside academia that many people who have reached the top of the professional tree, if you like, um, actually have hidden or other careers. Um, you, know, you mentioned mine, very generous in, in that. I mean, I, I did some 15 years as a, a associate lecturer for the Open University, and all of that was while I was uh, you know, effectively running universities or in, in senior executive positions, partly because I love teaching. I won't hide it. I'm not a born academic in the way that you are, so research doesn't come as easy to me as teaching, which I love, and that maybe says something about me. But the general point away from me is, and I think this explains why so many of us on both sides, if you like, of the admin, the professional services and academia, choose to work in universities, is that some of us, me included, I started in the private sector. So I worked in retail. You couldn't get more basic. I was stocking shelves at W.A. Smith because that's where I'd worked in my vacations. Um, and I came from a first-generation university, so my parents expected me to pay my way through. And um, I ended up at working at W.A. Smith and, and um, finished as head of customer relations at their head office. Um, so... I chose to give up all of that to go back to university because there's something about working in an environment where staff from all spectrum, from IT, the library, the, the schools of learning, the HR department, you've got really smart minds bouncing off each other. You've got people in roles that you don't even know sometimes have their own PhDs, might have their own learning interests. One of the things that we do, even here at the British University, we, we're very supportive of, of our admin and professional services staff furthering their own education, doing their masters, doing their doctorates. We can argue about whether the doctorate is, is strictly speaking, necessary, whether it will lead indeed to a, a further career in academia. And there are other reasons for that in this climate. But there is certainly something about working with students and intelligent people. Um, and that many of us choose to give up what may be bigger salaries, better careers in the private sector, because it's, it just keeps you alive. I mean, I know because I did it and it was hard. For those 15 years, I had a full-time job, and especially in an, an executive position, you know, it's it's 24-7. You, you, your email's never off, your phone's never off, you're never really on leave. And at the same time, in the evenings and weekends, I was um, I was teaching for the Open University in Scotland, and I covered 
a huge geographical area. I had the northern, uh, the, the whole of the north of Scotland, the Highlands and Islands, the Outer Hebrides, the Inner Hebrides, the Western Isles, Orkney and Shetland. That was my entire area. Uh, and that was fine when I lived in Scotland. Uh, I, I drive up to Inverness to give classes. But when I moved down and was teaching in Bristol and London, I was flying up mm. on my own time and in my own expense because it kept me alive. And also because I was talking poetry and literature and art and subjects that meant something to me kept me intellectually stimulated so it was worth me traveling the way up to Aberdeen or Inverness to give a, a class every other month um, but yeah that that I think is it's it's less uncommon than you think whether or not there are as many poets I don't know but I know two vice chancellors who are poets one here uh, our own vice chancellor the British University in Dubai I know a, a, a well-known poet in a, a university in Bangladesh a female vice chancellor who is, is known as a poet more than she is a vice chancellor so there are these hidden you know, these hidden skills. I don't know if I would describe mine as a skill, but it um, certainly when you get an integrated university, by which I mean a university that's really working well, where the admin professional services staff are working alongside colleagues in academia in a way that often doesn't happen or shouldn't should happen, then you see that parity of esteem. You see the fact that everyone is there for a purpose. We might come in and do a different job every day, but what drives us is the intellectual function of why we're here. And, you know, the, the, the bigger question about what is and why is a university, that, I think, sums it up. Because we are, I know it's a cliche, but we are bigger than the sum of our parts. I mean, I was at a conference earlier this year and a presentation was given by a member of the Central Admin from University in Thailand. And everybody else presenting, it was an academic of some some degree, some, some students, some early career, some sort of more established, but all had, you know, the academic, <laughs> I was going to say taint, uh, the academic um, whatever next to them. And and this lady stood up and, and she gave a presentation about a project they've been looking at in terms of how big universities use marketing social media to demonstrate their value to the community. And and she explained that, that her vice-chancellor, was very keen on admin staff conducting research based on their day-to-day -day practical activity, you know, po you know, policy to research or practice to, to research. And she said, you know, we're, we're encouraged to do this. We're given sort of space to do this. You know, it's, it's sort of publicized, publicized. And I think it goes to your point that, you know, if a university, and we'll, we'll, I think we'll come to this, like what is a university and why is a university and, and what's it supposed to do? It's a place of thinking, right? It's a place of learning and, should should ad administrators therefore simply be in the derogatory term pushing paper from one to another or filling in a form or you know or should they be recognized for you know and accepted and, and celebrated for for their own you know thinking development ideas whatever it might be of course within the limitations of any company that that has you know structure and job descriptions etc but i mean you you run the administrative function of the university and you, as you said, you have staff that have, in your time here, gone through masters, gone through PhDs. Um, how do you see that? I mean, is that a is that a central purpose of a university? Is that a sort of a uh, an added benefit of a university? Um, yeah, I think I mean it's a good question. In this context, it's very different. So you have, we have to be aware of the the kind of cultural, social, and, and behavioural context that we're in here in the United Arab Emirates. Um, I will I'll be honest. Uh, in the larger universities, and certainly in, in Britain and, and in the USA where I've worked, you would not find even proportionally such a large number of people doing PhDs in professional services. They may be doing them for their own reason. They may, in fact, be active researchers, and they may have 
careers on the side, or they may be, in fact, moving towards academia. But I think PhDs, and, and I still kind of subscribe to that view myself, that the PhD really is or should be a terminal degree aimed at becoming an academic. I'm not as wild about the American idea where, you know, I lived and worked in, in, in different parts of America, that the idea that, you know, you, you put the PhD on your name, even if you're a dentist or a cake maker or whatever, it's just a an extra thing. So I'm not entirely convinced, although I fully understand why so many staff here do it, because it has to do with, you know, cultural issues around pay and conditions and benefits and, and promotion possibilities. I think the master's is a different... Sure. I would yeah, take yeah. a different view. I think master's are, especially... I'm not saying everyone should do it in the way I did, as it happens. I went out and worked for five or six years in business and then decided myself to pay for my own and return to university and pay for my own master's. Um, and I think that helped me a great deal. I was more mature. I'd worked in the real world, if you want to call it that, um, done some time. And then paying my own way was a significant um, investment in my own education and development. But even when I went back to do my master's, I was not at all sure whether I would do a PhD. I wanted to, at that time, become an academic. And I knew that I had been in business for long enough that I wasn't sure if I was good enough. So the master's was a way of testing the water for me. Mm. Um, the PhD for me still was absolutely about becoming an academic. Of course, I, you know, having said I'm sitting, listeners can't see this, thank God, sitting here in a suit and tie. At the time, having said when I left business, I will never work in an office again. I will not put on a suit and tie. I'm going to become a lecturer. I'm going to put on the leather jacket and I'm going to talk about Shakespeare and Yeats and uh, Virginia Woolf and whatever. Uh, that didn't work, did it? Because I think once you've been sucked into management, then you get, you know, that you get spotted and pulled into it again. And um, and maybe that's probably the best outcome, because as I said, I'm not the born researcher. The pressure on especially early career academics to, to publish in the UK under the REF or uh, research assessment exercise as it was then is, is so significant. But um, I think this this idea that the, the university is... is uh, it contains people with lots of different skill sets. I mean, there is the monotony of administration, but I think many academics I speak to, even senior, they have just as much monotony in their world. I mean, mm. you know, there's some fun and the conferencing, perhaps, and the research, the really investigative work or the breakthrough if you're in the lab, perhaps, or just the interaction with a group of students from whom you learn more than they learn from you. But I think um, I might pick you up on the thing you said about universities being around learning. Um, it's an absolutely factual statement. I would prefer to see the emphasis put on universities as places of knowledge, because I think what we do, and that you know, this transactional nature is something which has come up. I'm sure you've discussed it and written about it, and it's an uncomfortable thing many of us feel that universities and education in general has become transactional. You know, I'm paying for something, therefore you give it to me. Yeah. Right? I've gone into the shop and I bought it off the shelf, and we're not about that. And you know, we use buzzwords like we transfer knowledge. You'll just tell me that is learning, isn't it? Come on, let's stop using modern phrases, but. I think as repositories of knowledge in such a kind of sententious phrase, it also sits with our staff. There's a huge amount of accumulated and also accreted knowledge mm -hmm. amongst all staff at universities and students too. The, their lived experience, even if they're only 18 or 19, um, brings a weight to a university, again, that, that is much bigger than all the individual parts. So although, yes, there perhaps is more routine and monotony in admin, and, and many admin, by the way, many professional services staff, are not academics, are not interested in academia. They're working in a job. They, they may be in a finance department. They could be just as well as good in a bank or in, a, in another industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not all about us all just... We don't all sit down at lunch break and discuss Conrad with each other, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think you know what I mean. The, 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 I do. The, the quirky types, the people who... Universities provide a really nurturing and at times quite demanding environment which suits a certain type of individual even if he or she's actual day-to-day -day job is crunching the numbers or doing the exam timetabling or actually stocking shelves in a library, you'd be amazed at the conversation I've had with 
library shelf stockers in mm. my time, both as a postgrad and even when I've done it myself, because these people are scarily knowledgeable. Sure, yeah. Uh, and yet their job title might tell you that they're simply a, you know, collections archivist. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I don't actually disagree. I think that that sort of construct of a place of knowledge, and, and we've, we've sort of moved into, you know, conversations and debates recently about demonstrating the impact of a university, you know, and, and particularly with the employability agenda and, and obviously with increasing fees and, and also, I think, to an extent, the massification of education. I mean, you know, several generations ago, higher education, particularly in the Western concept, would lead you to, well, in the British case, you'd probably get to run a country somewhere. Mm. But, you know, it, it, you know, it was yeah. more or less a guaranteed pathway. We increased access, which is obviously, <laughs> broadly speaking, a very, very good thing. But that has, of course, created a new sense of pressures about the transactional nature of education, the experience of education, and the obviously impact of education on the on the, the back end with the, with the graduates, um, and so, I mean, are, are we thinking? You know, we were talking about um, classical uh, uh, history before we we started recording. I mean, are we thinking that the the purpose of education? Sorry, not of education. The purpose of a university is to provide that environment within which people can think. You know, obviously, in the modern world, the purpose of an education experience like a university has stakeholders and has finance and has and has all of the business of that goes along with you know allowing the lights to remain on mm-hmm. um how do you balance that within 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 the world that you that you live in yeah it's a really good point because you know we we we, we can choose the fact as much as we like about the kind of beautiful part of the university why universities might have been set up but the, the real politique is that you know we have enormous pressures on us academics and professional services and particularly those of us that run universities and look i'm not making any kind of the world's tiniest violin playing for vice chancellors and their salaries and the kind of disputes that might be going on and say in the uk right now with the ucu strikes and the, the way the employees are dealing with that but at the same time i'm also very realistic having worked in business that universities uh, especially in the West and America, of course, it's huge. But even in the UK, it is take something like University of Manchester that makes uh, allegedly a billion pounds off graphene. Or the different, the, 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 these are big numbers, right? These are multi-million pound industries and businesses. And although as I hesitated, as you heard on the word business, because many academics and other staff too really, really you know, bulk of that idea that we're, we're in business, that we're selling something. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't use the word customer or client, or we try not to, and we shouldn't, I believe. We, we are not about selling a product. But we have very real-world problems and very real-world pressures of economy and of government and of policy, and now particularly of what people think we should be doing or rather producing. Uh, even though producing worries me, you know, I've, those have had the misfortune to listen to me or read what I've written, TEDx talks and others, uh, I've railed against this idea that we are producing uh, what they call job-ready. I hate that term, job-ready graduates. You know, and it makes me sound like I'm some kind of dinosaur, because it's very easy that you, you could level it back to me, especially if you are 18, 19, saying, listen, you, you, you're doing well, you're, you, you're earning a decent salary, you've got the job you wanted, you went to a top university, so, you know, hush up, and we, we have a huge, scary world out there. Even with a good degree, we may not get a job. So I get that, but I am nervous that we are being pushed into this, um, you know, factory process, you know, because we're not producing that's not our job. Uh, we may be transferring knowledge, if I want to go back to my buzzword, or you may be teaching and, and inculcating learning. But if we're doing anything, we should be getting students and graduates ready for life. Mm. And I've said that before. I think that's, that is one thing a university does. 
But even that of itself is a quite an ageist approach because that presupposes students are in the main 18, 19 when they come in and they leave when they're in their early 20s. But yeah. actually universities are now about so much more than that. They're about, you know, my teaching experience was mostly with people of my own age or older, especially at somewhere like the Open University where you've got students in prison, you've got students in the military, you've got students who are retired pensioners, you've got people who've never been in formal education, crofters in the north of Scotland who are, you know, logging in once a month to, to chat with you online way before, you know, all the, the, the hybrid learning we had because of COVID. So, you know, the, the university plays a really elastic um, role in that. You mentioned that space to think. And, I, you know, there are precious few spaces for people to think now. Um, school is very hard, really, to yeah, think. Yeah. Unless you're lucky, you go to, like me, a very small rural school in, in, in where I grew up in England where it was possible because the class sizes were tiny and it was, you know, the back of the you know 80s but but now schools are really having the pressure and I'm, I'm talking to students at 13 14 their parents are telling them their universities are being already sorted out for them i mean it's it's a different world to what i was used to we did think at school and we definitely thought at uni that was exactly why we went i'm lucky and you may well be too chris uh, even though you're a lot younger than me in that i literally got to choose university to, to go to do what i wanted to do for three years with not a thought about what job i might have and i was not at a british public school or private education you know, i came from as i said first generation parents expected me to work but there was never the pressure Hugh, you need to get this job or that job no uh, that i i really do respect the, the 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 younger generation now having that pressure put on them as i said in their mid-teens sometimes so if we are about a space to think then that's something that's really worth holding on to and maybe that's our starting point for the definition of what a modern university should be because it is very flexible now it's not mm-hmm. the same as the the bricks and mortar it used to be but if we enable some ability for people to come and put the cares as- the rest of their their lives aside and think in the ways that we can help them with in your subject my subject whatever we're doing and of course that means i'd like to get away from a purely vocational educational system that trains someone in one specific skill because I think that we should be doing more than that. And then again, that's another big argument. Well, yeah, I mean, and it's, you know, if we're moving away or we're able to move away from the subject based and, you know, thinking about problem solving. So, you know, you have a poet and an engineer and, you know, somebody in a room and you're just tackling, you know, um, I mean, it certainly would be an interesting model. I think I think it's strange because, you know, the, the point that you make, and, and I, I completely agree with, but if if the pressures of on are getting younger and younger in in um, school-age children, effectively, almost children at that point, and then certainly young adults, the way they conceive of a university is in and of itself different than the way that we perhaps would wish them to conceive, because they are they are looking at it as a service provider. They are looking at it as a stepping stone, and therefore the level of accountability they hold us to shifts, mm-hmm. right? Because it's, it's, well, I'm here, and I'm paying money to be here, Maybe not with a guarantee, but with the, the leverage that is going to move me to the next thing. Mm. And we're saying, I mean, I remember when I, same as you, I went to a, um, a university to study classics with no obvious career path. Um, I mean, there were options, but it wasn't like there was a necessary, you know, um, pathway. Mm-hmm. And I had eight hours of lectures a week. And the rest of the time it was some reading, some thinking and some playing. And that was that was life at university. And that space and that freedom without the expectation of what I was going to do, which is maybe it's not great in all cases, but was that was that space. It wasn't for me, it wasn't transactional. It was a very, very different approach. I'm looking back on it now, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I could have done. Um, but I think the, the approach was very different to the, the university level students we see coming in today. Mm-hmm. And I worry that 
not just and this job ready issue. And I, I worry that we're also, we're not as a sector particularly qualified anymore to make people job ready for jobs that don't exist. Mm. And so our approach now tends to be, well, you as the student need to be innovative. You need to be entrepreneurial. You need to take responsibility for something that we don't know is going to happen. Mm. And therefore, what's our purpose? You know, could that not be better achieved perhaps in, in um, internships, mm-hmm. assuming that they're, they're affordable and, and, and possible with the student's um, circumstance? What, you know, how do we balance what we believe our central purpose to be and what the world believes mm-hmm. or, or understands our central purpose to be? And maybe it's the fact that the sector is so big, the space in it for us to do different things. I think so, but I, I, I couldn't agree with you more about this, this uh, crisis of identity that some of us have. And I think, although you're right, the sector is big and it involves everything from... I mean, we don't... Weirdly, I say it's big. We, we, we got rid of... I'm thinking of the UK here, but it exists in other countries too. We got rid of polytechnics. We got rid of technical colleges. You know, higher education and further education, FE in the UK, has been you know, cruelly underfunded for decades and doesn't, doesn't really seem to have any clear purpose now at all. Uh, compared to a time when I was going to university when there was a very clear purpose that if you wanted to skill up individuals then you went to colleges, polytechnics and further education because they absolutely had the skills university didn't have. Mm -hmm. But I agree with you entirely and I think the reason about identity and universities... I think we've got lost somehow and, and, you know, we can blame all kinds of people. Typically, of course, I'm in education, so I'm going to blame government. But I think you can blame industry, you can blame a lot of pressures outside universities. And the reason they've got away with it for so long is universities have been very um, woolly about standing up for what we do well and also being very clear about what we don't do. I mm. think this is, we don't manage expectations very well in this regard. We should have been clearer a lot earlier with government, particularly with policymakers, that universities are not and never have been about skilling people for jobs. You make the absolutely perfect point, which is not just now, I know it's trendy to say because of AI and everything else going on and sustainability and climate change. Actually, I think this has always been the case. Universities are training or working with young people and they will go on to do things that universities don't know. Mm. And that has always worked because universities are not job creation factories. The people, I always argue, the people that should be doing the training for jobs are the companies and industries themselves because they have the technicality, they have the skills, and also because we've come to this realisation more, perhaps in recent times, that, that lifelong learning is actually what we all need. Mm. You don't just do a degree when you're 18 for three years and that's the only education you have until you retire at 65. Actually, especially now, because, you know, my parents' generation, maybe even my grandparents' generation were the last that could say genuinely they had one career for life. Yeah. You know, I've had three, if you want to take me as an example. I started in business, I then became an academic, and then I'm now running universities in terms of its uh, professional services. So if I've got different careers, these students coming out now are going to have many, many careers, some of which, as you rightly say, we don't know about. So instead of doing things that we can't do very well and we don't know, and then getting blamed for it, which is what seems to be happening now. Right, yeah. Universities are the whipping boy for all the faults of society, government, industry, and everyone. Industry will always tell us you're producing the wrong kind of graduates they can't spell properly. I mean, if I had a dollar for every time I've heard that, and it makes me particularly laugh, because I've worked in industry with board members around the table in the very old-fashioned British retail world where not a single member of the board members, they're all men, they're all white, and not a single one had a degree. None of them could spell for toffee, but they ran one of the biggest and most successful British retailers that still exist now after 200 years so you know the, some of that I just take with a pinch of salt but industry will always blame it, it, it's very much like the you remember the, the, the old two Ronnie sketch with uh, John Cleese as the, the very tall man as it happens like you very tall so he looked down on 
Ronnie Barker, who looked down on Ronnie Corbett, who looked down on the guy at the end. There's always in that chain, if the, the industry will blame us, we'll blame secondary schools, secondary schools will blame primary schools. It's a ludicrous and utterly pointless exercise because we've been drawn into an argument that we shouldn't have been in the first place. We should have been much better in universities, in higher education, in stating our case plainly and being really clear about what we do and what we don't do. And what we don't do, I think, in my opinion, we shouldn't do, is get wrapped up in this obsession, which unfortunately seems to happen in this part of the world a lot, with only teaching a very narrow focus group of subjects because they will re- relate or result in high-paying careers. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with STEM in, in the wider, full shop front of a proper university. We need more engineers, of course. We need more mathematicians. We need scientists. But we also need all the other careers as well. And some of us, you said, that we don't know exist yet. But this obsession with the idea that you mentioned what are young people now being brought up to think. I don't blame a 13, 14 year old in thinking university is simply a method for him or her to get more money and a better job at the end. Because that's what they're being told. Yeah, yeah. Nobody's telling them. What about, it sounds very wishy-washy, but what about those three years after you've done your IB or your A-levels or whatever? Um, when you might just get to live a little bit of life and to fall in and out of love with each other and yourself. Work out how things... Um, relate to each other, work out how people behave, meet people of different cultures and genders and behaviours and religions and sexualities, um, make mistakes but get in, in a protective enough environment where you can get up again. Mm-hmm. Why is that not being explained to kids at that age so that they think of university as more than just this is my ticket to a better salary when I start? Well, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I guess part of it is the, as you say, that's the, the way in which these things have been framed. Um, I worry um, we have too much information these days right? and, and it's an overload of and therefore that increases the pressure and that increases the, the response to it and, and taking the time, you know, there's, there's that sense of immediacy, right? Mm. Everything is important, everything yeah. pops on your phone and therefore it must be important. No, most of the stuff is not important. It might be interesting, but it's not important or urgent. Yeah. And, and yet there's that, that sense of, well, you know, I'm going to run out of time. I'm going to miss this. I've got to. I've got to keep running. I've got to keep running because the competition is so great, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and you know, if you live within that world, somebody saying, you know what, just just take three years to think. Mm-hmm. What good's that going to do me? I'm going to be three years older, and I won't have progressed in the perhaps transactional sense, as opposed to the sort of holistic, philosophical, and and maybe just you know human sense. Yeah. You will have. You've certainly have grown. I mean, I I look yeah. back on my university experiences having been key to developing who who I am today, but at least putting me on the pathway to thinking about the things that I think about today mm-hmm. and, and having that space to, 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 to reflect on that. Maybe it was because there was no obvious job for me to go to. And so I, I had that freedom, perhaps, I don't, I don't know. Um, but I, I had the same thing with my parents there. It wasn't that I was an expectation I was going to go that was going to lead to something. It was if you had the opportunity to go to university, you're fortunate and you're fortunate enough to be able to do so. I mean, yeah. I was supported by, you know, the, the LEA council grants and then I paid my own master's way. And, um, but yeah, it was an opportunity to, to explore and to think my, my, my mum's a teacher. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's that, that sort of understanding, perhaps I don't know, but, um, I, I see that in classes today with students and I, I see that in, in conversations around conferences and, and I see this, Coming back to this, like, what is a university? What is the purpose of a university? And, and perhaps it's not just one thing anyway, but it's being, it's being reframed as, I think the point you made is absolutely correct. We're being blamed for something we shouldn't be doing mm. or we shouldn't want to be doing in the first place. And therefore we're not going to be doing well because it's not the thing we want to do 
or should be doing, and, and that's that's churning out graduates. Excuse me. No, we should be graduating students. We shouldn't be turning out job-ready graduates as our primary purpose. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, and actually the process of, and again, the, uh, the, the, heard in the wrong way, or the, the way I'm expressing this could be seen in, in the light of, you know, this is very wishy-washy, and actually, you know, the, the, the accusations levelled at us, particularly from, from people who have some concern about what we do and what we produce, if you want to use that word. And, and of course, government has a right, you know, a large amount of public money in some countries goes into education, yeah. not in every country. You know, America has a very different way of looking at it. But the the um, the, the debates that we're pulled into now, I mean, some of them are, are getting beyond hysterical into to, to really cruel kind of uh, economics of universities that you know arts and humanities sh- either shouldn't exist at all or should be priced out because they don't need to half of the time these are all actually nonsensical the one you should be very very you know very careful about who is the messenger in this mm. look carefully at the people that are telling you these messages more often than not they are especially in our example from the UK, they have benefited from some of the very best universities in the world themselves. More in the British system, in certain political parties, more often than not, they've been at Oxbridge. Mm-hmm. So they've had the privilege, and I accept it is a privilege, and, and you know, it, being able to go and do three or four years of something which may seem entirely esoteric and not leading to anything in particular, just enjoying the life of being a student. Um, for example, when I was a student, probably when you were a student, our degree subject was irrelevant. You did classics, I did English literature. But similarly, you could do physics, you could do uh, chemistry, you could do um, you know, any of the life sciences, biology, or any of these subjects, and you could still become a UN translator, or a playwright, or a ballet dancer, or a physical engineer, or a, you know, a, yeah. uh, you know, um, uh, a businessman, or a banker. The degree subject itself was irrelevant. It was about the process of what you learned during the three or four years. Mm-hmm. Now, there were some exceptions, and there always will be. Medicine, we understand, is a, if you're sure. going to commit six or seven years to something, you better hope you're committed. And it is a calling. I use that word deliberately. It's a vocation. And people who commit to that uh, understandably do that. They don't mess around with doing some Spanish on the side or doing a little bit of classics. To a certain extent, law, but in most cases, law is not done as an undergraduate degree, but as law school later. So again, I had many friends that went to law school from all kinds of subjects, from science, from maths, from computers, from, uh, you know, English lit, from classics, from modelings. Um, so I do think this idea that we're being, you know, be careful who's telling us now what university should and shouldn't be, because they had the privilege of being able to do all the things they wanted to do in this very wide open world. And now they're telling you, and by which I mean younger people, no, 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 you're not having any of those choices at all. You want to get a good job, you've got to do maths. Mm-hmm. Don't waste your time with classics or English. In fact, we're going to price it out for you so that you can't even consider it. Because what that does is create an elite which they are already part of. Because they could afford, mostly these politicians, in the first place could afford to have done whatever subject they want. But they're very busy telling you, which is why I'm always careful about warning, be careful of the messenger. Um, they're telling you about what will come for you later. Um... We have a role to play in that too, universities. We cannot keep sitting back in the way we have in the past. Um, we, we're going to get blamed, look, either way, whether we say nothing or whether we say something. When we say something, we're blamed for being elitist or, oh, knowledge. You know, we, we, we have in some parts of the world, I mean, populism has reached such a level across everywhere, from Brazil to India to Hungary, UK, USA, you name it. We have very, very clever politicians telling us, actually saying things which would not have shocked George Orwell when he wrote 1984, that... Be careful of knowledge. Uh, we don't need knowledge anymore. Knowledge is not important. We have people telling us openly, presidents of countries, the black is white or white is black. Uh, we, we've got to such a level where universities, if we're not the last bastions of 
of just politely, carefully, but always evidentially pointing out that this is nonsense, we are, you know, we are at risk of disappearing ourselves because we, we're having our spaces removed. We're having the thinking idea, um, a, a space for thinking being squeezed. We're being told what we can and can't say in terms of free speech now. Um, and, you know, sometimes we're told we can and sometimes we can't, but there's always a hidden agenda and it's coming from outside of the university itself. So I do think our role now is to push back a lot more vociferously than we have in the past. And we can help that 13, 14 year old in, a, in, in as far as the people that are telling them why they're going to go to university schools and often their parents, I don't really blame that they will have gone through it themselves and now they're really concerned for their their, their offspring, their young people. They're nervous that the, the world of, of work is going to be all over them. And many people haven't got a lot of cash to spare these days. So they're worried that their kid is going to do some degree that might or might not end up in a job. Yeah. Um, we could do a lot more in universities about advertising how many of us, you, me included, have done completely different things. You're not a classicist. You're a professor of, uh, you know, in an education faculty. I'm not a poet. Um, to be honest, you couldn't make money from being a poet anyway. But, you know, there's plenty more, more famous and obvious examples than us, um, who've gone through really good universities. And, um, you know, some of us do try within the system itself to influence it. And, you know, there, for example, you started this about how many registrars might have that other you know coat to wear but actually you'd be surprised how many people who are chief operating officers registrars whatever you want to call them who who have quite a lot of loud voices in the sector about how we can try and stop some of this uh, you know some of this movement in the direction which we're fearing and, and we do make a difference in universities I mean, vice chancellors have their own you know battles to fight but i think some of us Often registrars go a little bit under the radar, but um, we see, I mean, I have colleagues who have done many, many more years than me at this and have seen that change and the, and the, and the pressures that they see on our students. Um, who, who, you know, one of the things that annoys me the most is when I hear people say, oh, it's, you know, students are so much more single-minded and purposeful now. When I was a student, you know, we kind of laid about and went, to, as you said, eight hours of lectures. No, no, you know, I, I much prefer the go to eight hours of lectures, get up when you feel like it in our subject but think an awful lot and then get told by your tutor that you should have read eight more books that week. Because I do not think it's necessarily a good thing that we're heaping so much pressure on these young people that they're coming in nervous, not sleeping. You know, we have the, the far extreme and we have suicide rates definitely increasing in a number of universities in the, where this would never have been an issue in the past. Extreme amounts of anxiety pressed onto students. Um, and, and they shouldn't have that. We're doing it even at school level. So by the time they come to us at 18, 19, mm. they're already planning or plotting their next, you know, goodness knows how many years afterwards. Whereas if you, as you say, if they don't even know the job they're going to go into because it doesn't exist yet. I know it's easy for me to say, but take a step back. Yeah. Try somehow. Maybe we can find a way for that, but try to, to relax into it. more. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's a, it's a little bit of the house of cards approach, right? Mm. Isn't it? Because we've got, Reduction in the arts budgets, reduction in social science. You know, when, when staff are being cut, that's often where it begins. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, almost wholesale. Based on the premise of a traditional approach to subjects, to traditional subjects, which is engineering, maths, business, perhaps computer science. Um, mm -hmm. um, and so let's push you, keep pushing you into traditional degrees because those are job ready, guaranteed, et cetera. But that's not true. I mean, if you look at the numbers in various countries of, you know, tens of thousands of engineering students graduating in India, for example, with, with literally no, no prospect of a job because yep. the job market just doesn't exist for yep. it. You know, and you think, well, wh what is the, what's the point of that? Yeah. Right? Because that, that, it quite literally, it doesn't make any logical sense. And I wonder almost if we have this, this lost generation where if you think of this generation of university graduates, 
okay, I'm generalizing, mm-hmm. but you know, have spent a lot of money yep. to go to university, have faced all the pressures that you were talking about and all the stresses, and have come out and have then perhaps had to rethink themselves and, and redevelop and almost not lean on their university experience, which has been fairly job-focused or, or singular in terms of the subject. Mm-hmm. And you think, well, by the time they do get a job, to what extent can they con- attribute that to the university experience? And if they can't, would you as that person send your child to university yeah. in 20 years' time? Probably not. No. No, I, like you, am a complete believer in university. I think in terms of the space, what it can do, the potential. I have a seven-year-old daughter. I genuinely hope she has the opportunity and the interest to go to university. But if I was today, and I'm not going to make the decision for her, but were I to influence that, I'd say, go to a vocational school and learn to be an an electrician or a plumber and purely market yourself to women. You're servicing your community. Yes. You're, you're probably going to find purpose. You, you know, hopefully you're going to have a good, you know, financial compensation. You might not be interested in it at all, but it, it would probably be a, yeah. a, a more stable path. And yet I also hope she goes to university to study philosophy. Exactly. But that's partly because you, the first approach, which is the transactional, is uh, entirely logical. You know, you as as a parent or anyone, I guess, with, with someone who looks up to you, you want them to be the most successful. But it's a lot depends on how we define success. Exactly. Yes. And in universities, we shouldn't. Uh, and I think we we're getting more and more to do it. But we never used to define success by um, how much our graduates earned, if I'm really basic. Now, again, you'll say, look, your head is in the sand. You come from a time when we didn't look, We didn't have graduate destinations. We didn't even have that data of where, um, you know, there were no longitudinal studies of where students went. Universities didn't even know where their students yeah. were, let alone what job they were doing. Alumni was all about, especially in the British context, very different to America, of course, where it's about money and development. But in the British context, it was, it was really just an old boy or girl network. That's what it was about. It has become, and I don't mind this at all, it has become more professionalised. It has become more LinkedIn, if you like, um, um, but at the same time, I think th- this definition of success, if you were the parent who only considered what your daughter would do later, then you would do that first approach. Sure. If you're able, and, and, and this is where we'll get the accusations leveled of us, that we're middle class, and of course we've got time to think about these things, and we were brought up in a similar thing like you, my parents were teachers, so education was highly valued, that, that you want her to be something bigger and more wider in her in, in of herself than just someone who makes a career and make some money from yeah. it and I can sense that I'm poo-pooing or people will sense listening to this that I'm poo-pooing the idea that being successful and earning a lot of money is bad um, because I recognise some cultures don't see that and that is the absolute epitome of success but I guess for me that the the, the the big thing is this idea that um, that when you go to university this opportunity you have which is uh, it used to be very rare is less rare now we should celebrate that it's less rare this idea that you know when tony blair and others in germany was already doing it became everyone goes to university pretty much a yeah. lot of people were very nervous about that no 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 you should only go to university because it's for the elite it's for the just you know like anything like top sport it should only be for the very best that had its time now we have an opposite approach which is almost everyone is going to university Op- and now I'm conscious I went to one of these elite institutions, but I celebrate. The more people that have university degrees, the better, because I do believe that some of the problems that we face in the world today are around, you know, uh, very dangerous, illiterate uh, people or very cunning, dangerous people that use their knowledge against people that have little knowledge mm-hmm. and they turn that to their advantage. So the best way we can get rid of a lot of these problems is by spreading and disseminating knowledge. But I also think that this business that, um, that, the, that you are all about what you earn later, um, that you are that your degree leads to something 
Um, and, and that something is how much money you're going to make in life, then we've completely missed the point because universities never did that. Originally, if we go back far enough, of course, universities were, uh, were church-based. They were religious organisations, monastic in the, in the UK, early universities in the, in the Muslim world, very similar. They were, of course, men, men only. They were people writing and sharing knowledge from their religion and widening it so that more people could get it. But they had a, a very singular purpose and certainly had nothing to do with um, creating people who would then go on to become successful in money making. Those people that they taught would more often than not, if we're honest, who go back a thousand years or more, would also become like them, monastic or similarly <laughs> yeah. within their. You know. And it, it took time for it to widen out. And the and the burgeoning middle classes in the British model, certainly in in the medieval and then Renaissance universities, were not. Uh, we're not going to university at all. You know, you had at one end the extreme of the very, very rich that were being privately tutored, the, the, the royal yeah. nobility. And then you had the monastic orders that were doing the learning, but the middle classes were busy doing business. Yeah. And, and, and business and universities, and there has, and still in some cases in the UK, business and universities are uncomfortable bedfellows. You know, it's, trade is still considered slightly dirty. <laughs> um, you know, I think, that, I think a lot of those days have gone, thankfully. Industry supports a lot of learning now. But, and I worked in industry, I'm very open about it. Industry also exists to make money, quite rightly. They have shareholders, they have businesses to run. You know, when they commit, conduct research with us, when they commit to give us funding in university, that's because they want a result from it. Uh, and that's quite understandable. Yeah. Uh, it also gives us a little bit of financial freedom within universities to do the kind of research and, and fun stuff, if you want to call it that, which is way off, which nobody's going to pay for normally because it doesn't bring immediate results. But at the same time, that's a, a better way of me rambling around the idea that we are more than the sum of our parts. We're not just about the job you're going to get because a lot of my friends and colleagues and, and people I've worked with in the family who have been at university in the sciences, particularly in the life sciences, are doing extremely um, uh, far-reaching experimental research which will have very little, if any, impact in their lifetime. Right. But if they don't do the work now, in 50 or 60 years' time, we might not get to the next stage of the next stage of the possible yeah. cure. What's that... Um... Oh, what's the the saying about you planting you plant a tree so that your grandchildren have shade? I'm, I'm exactly. completely yeah, butchered no, that, but it's, it's that sort of idea, yeah, right? It's yes. Exactly that, and that, by the way, that perfectly um, highlights why if we turn universities into production factories or mills to just churn out those graduates with the next jobs, yeah, immediately the short term is we'll get loads of really well trained engineers. Actually, as you've said, that that's not great anyway because we've probably got too many. But the long term is heinous. The long term is we'll have nobody. That, that music you listen to on your drive home, that Netflix series you're watching, that um, you know, uh, that sport you you enjoy doing the weekends isn't going to happen anymore because those people are not there anymore. They're not. You, you've just got rid of that whole generation of people who also can benefit from university. I mean, I think that's the other thing we miss in all of this kind of race to the bottom, as I see it, of the, the chasing the dollar of the STEM subject, is that we're, we're missing the fact that in the past, the creative arts didn't need to go to universities. And that was fine. I, don't, don't, mm -hmm. I would happily go back to those days, but those days are gone. The creative arts have, have lost virtually everything. Theatres, museums being closed left, right and centre. So that's a role where universities can step in. That's actually something we do well. You know, universities especially in the, the, the Western system, are more than just a, a campus for young people to go to. They're the hubs of their communities, their museums, their kindergartens, their theatres. They're places where some people can watch cinema, which they wouldn't otherwise have in their small town. They are almost always in the UK, and certainly in, in our you know, smaller states in the US, they're the biggest employer by far yeah. in their region. And their income generation to that area is, is, is huge. So they play these actually really important other roles, social, community roles. Um, 
And that's something which we should not just celebrate, but we should actually be, I think, building on because that's another buffer against the the constant waves we have washing over our shore that, you know, we're not producing enough or why are you producing somebody looking at classics? Nobody needs to look at that anymore. And the actual, as I said, I keep coming back to it because it's shocking to think in my lifetime, a British Minister of State, who, by the way, highly educated, Oxford, I believe, uh, could get up and say, um, we, we don't need knowledge. Uh, fascinating and just horrific if we don't realise, you know, I mean, it would be funny if we didn't realise quite how, how, how Orwellian that is. Um. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, this, this issue of um, the role of the university within the community is something that Judith Lammy and I have, have been writing about, certainly thinking about and, uh, well, Judith much more successfully than me writing about. I've been, I've been sort of bombarding her with questions that I don't understand. Um, and uh, you know the, where it where a university gets its identity from and how it interacts with the community and, and while I completely agree with you and I think it should be celebrated I don't think we as universities necessarily do a very good job about making that evident you know in in, in, in English we have the town and gown that sort of ivory right. tower construct yeah. where um, you know there was often a, even in my university experience there was the you know we're at the university and then there's the you know the townspeople and, and quite often the townspeople perhaps would have benefit economically from the university, but also be quite glad when we left mm. for the summer, right? Because yes, obviously yeah. students are students, particularly in the Western concept, right? So, um, and uh, and yet, I think we come back to this issue of, of space, right? We, you know, a university provides space mm. and it provides space for things to happen that are not always immediate mm-hmm. and they're not always transactional. They might simply be cerebral they might simply be social they might simply be i went to a university which was an open campus in nottingham Mm -hmm. and people could just walk through and it had a lake and you'd see people walking dogs or walking people and it's it was apart from the city in the sense that it was you know on on the sort of the outskirts but it was still part of the fabric of um of of the city life and and nottingham trent even more so being a city campus you know people walked past buildings and you know you know it's sort of intertwined with and yeah, having open seminars and having cinemas and having theatres and, um, you know, we've talked to, on previous podcasts to, to colleagues um, about the fact that, you know, universities open up meal plans. And so, you know, it might be the, the only place that, that people can get affordable meals, mm-hmm. you know, within the university canteen area. And so, you know, that, that, you know, demonstrating the purpose of university beyond the degree. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think... Um, Sorry, beyond purely the degree, because obviously yes. degree technically would encompass the experience, but yes. beyond the paper, as and it were. If you, and and you're, you're right about that we don't advertise. In fact, we are, generally, this conversation has, has reminded me how we are very bad at blowing our own trumpet in universities. And there's an irony, I'm, I'm grinning here, because the, the irony is, of course, that we got blamed or have been blamed in the past for blowing our own yeah, yeah. because we get the usual, oh, you know, the ivory tower, professor such and such has got a view on vaccines, this or that and the other. And we, you know, the rest of us just want to live our lives. And, you know, the irony, of course, here in particular, having just come out or hopefully coming out of a pandemic is that the, the vaccines that we all relied upon, the, the, the even the more basic facts of life, that the, the way that the, the epidemiology that's being studied is being studied in universities. That's just a fact of life. That's where these things happen. So we have a very, very serious purpose. But we're also just very bad, as you said, you know, in many communities, and not just in the, in the West, in many parts of the world, in Africa particularly, where we, we bang on about hybrid learning and this, that and the other, but actually in many places, if you want to get any kind of Wi-Fi at all, in, in some places, you've got to go to the university campus. Many places don't have libraries, but the university might do. 
I mentioned more perhaps modern up-to-date ideas, but kindergartens, places for um, young mums and dads to leave their kids while they're going to work. Um, sport. Many people interact with universities that they don't even consider that they're actually just, you know, uh, when I worked in retail, I wasn't at uni at the time, but I played squash with my, the, the branch manager of the store I was working at, and we were playing in a, as it happened, an FE college, because there were no, you know, that's kind of squash courts, expensive things to have. We didn't have that kind of, we're not in a private school environment, so you would be using or interacting with facilities. Mm. And in, in many ways, in the British model, that's right, because public money had gone into them. It's yes, really right that yes. they should. But I love the idea, as you said, that I've, I've been across campuses around the world. I've been lucky enough to travel with universities that I work for. And I've been in, I just got back recently from Helsinki, a beautiful city I've not visited before, with the very old universities. You know, Helsinki is an old place anyway, and, and you get, but the university's been there since the, the Swedish uh, occupation. And um, they have so you know they've got beautiful old buildings but they're so uh, engaged with the Helsinki community that most people who have coffee are having it within a university cafe <laughs> because it's slightly subsidised but that's not the point everything's expensive in Finland it's because it's better coffee but you know why because their students union like many places it's it's you know fair trade it's organic it's properly the baristas are students it's I know that sounds wishy when you say that's just silly and most places in the rest of the world haven't got time for such nonsense that just happens to be the Scandinavian way but it showed me how there, there were people in and out of that university uh, in, in what they called their thinking space. And I saw people coming off the street and I was going around with the registrar, a colleague of mine there, and he was telling me that many of those people were using their ideas lab, their thinking space, their entrepreneurial labs. Uh, they were not connected to the university at all. They didn't need an ID card to get in. They didn't really? Need a, um, they didn't need a um, uh, Wi-Fi um, Code account or anything, to give yeah. a guest account. They were in there. They were uh, trading, doing business, wow. making ideas, sitting and writing, things going on. Students around them very very um interesting modern thinking environment um and maybe the citizens of that city are are open to that kind of thing but it just reminded me that the university just serving another purpose government shouldn't do that i think we would certainly in our country feel very nervous if we went into a place opened by the government that we were encouraged to go in and thinking because we think hang on a minute what's the catch but people trust universities in certain parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that issue, and I'm, I'm thinking specifically in my own country now, I am really disappointed in, the, in, in how quickly trust has been eroded in universities in the UK. And I hope we can build back to the level that I see still in Europe and other places. Because, you know, if we don't trust our universities anymore, yeah, sure, we have problems. We're big businesses, after all. We're yeah. going to have employee problems. We're going to have pay problems. We're going to have, you know, sustainability problems. You know, we're big, uh, we're big users of carbon. You know, academics like yourself, we fly around the world. We do, you know, even me going to Finland might be said is that really necessary as a, as a conference or a sharing idea given the state of the climate now but we bring in students from every country conceivable we bring in different languages and different uh, thought processes and ordinary non-university folk who can walk in and out of open campuses like that are uh, just a reminder to us that we are as much a part of their community as they are hosting us. And apart from a very few rare medieval examples, like maybe St Andrews, Oxford and Cambridge, where the city kind of grew up around the university, in most places, especially big civic universities in the US, Australia and, and, and elsewhere, the university is a big, important part of that city or town's identity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they're very rightly proud of it. So, for example, when um, COP, whatever it was, 26, I guess, was in Glasgow, it was no accident the University of Glasgow was front and centre in the, in the hosting of... Now, COP is huge. COP is state presidents and prime mm-hmm. ministers and very important people. University front and centre and saying, look, hang on a minute, this is what we do. Yeah. This is where knowledge, expertise and practicality come together. And we are the place that hosts that. Mm. So, 
I mean, that's almost the perfect way to end it, but I did want to ask you a question about where you think universities might be heading. It's and a, that's a separate question yeah. for where you might want them to yeah, be heading. That's a, for yeah, that's a good point. I could, I could spend another five podcasts about the perfect Hugh, Hugh Martin University, which, by the way, nobody would come to, and um, I would fully understand why. No, uh, genuinely, I, you know, without um, flattering you, I think that was a brilliant point on which to end, because I would like to see that. I think that model... and. In a way, it happened at the last, and the reason I'm mentioning COP for your listeners that don't know, we have COP28 here in Dubai this year, so it's very much in our minds. COP27 last year was at Sharm el-Sheikh in, in Egypt, and my colleagues at the British University in Egypt were again front and centre at that. Now, that was a very different kind of COP, very different to the way Glasgow did it, but I think that that presence that universities now hold, um, if we take an example of what I think is or should be on its way out, because of all the things it represents, but could be quite easily skewed into something more productive, and that's something like a Davos, where you get a gathering of the extremely wealthy and important influencers of the world, but they're, you know, bankers, and they're mostly men, and they're mostly white. Yeah, I think you can see where I'm going with this. And, you know, that, and it's all very secretive, and the Swiss are very good at that kind of thing, and, um, you know, it's very militarised, and people need gold passes. And by the way, I know this personally because LSE had a role at Davos, so I'm not just, you know, spouting conspiracy theories here, but I think the days of a Davos are gone. And I think it's exclusionary. I think it's divisive. And, and, and you know, the, the, the developing nations of the world come on the edges of a Davos with their begging bowls, quite literally. I think now the role of the university is to really reaffirm our place. And you mentioned that word place. We do what we do every day anyway. People don't even notice. And in some ways, that's good. We have a very cyclical year. Students come, students go. Exams happen, they, yeah, they get marked. That's what you do. Yeah. And even what I do is to support what you do, which it should be to support what students do. Yeah. We're going to be doing that anyway. Like a factory is going to be churning out what it does. We should be doing the process of our teaching and learning. But we are really fantastic places. And I think we haven't been very good at advertising that. If I was going to hold a COP or anything like it, if, it, if the kind of things where I want to hear from Greta Thunberg, I want to hear from young people, it's at universities. Instead of being worried and arguing the toss about whether we are places for no platforming and free speech, we should be knocking the doors down, taking the windows and the walls away and letting all the most outrageous and stupid views be risen and, and aired here. Because if we can't do it here, then it goes into the public forum and very dangerous people get hold of it and different agendas are on it. Universities are full of the, should be, the brightest minds in the world, from China to Canada. So if a mad person gets up with some specious and ridiculous argument and denies climate change or is a flat earther, a professor like you or a doctor like her or somebody else will get up and just very carefully dismantle every single one of those stupid arguments. And that's what I think we should be doing now. I think universities are not just the thinking environment, but the physical place that we offer. We have fantastic campuses. You only have to go around the world to see. And it's not always where you think. It doesn't have to be in Chicago or New York or Paris or expensive cities. It could be in Medellin in Colombia. I can remember seeing one in, in a pretty down area of Rio in Brazil. Campuses which are fantastic spaces. And that actually engenders the environment where we can put to bed or really rip apart some of the nonsense that's going on in the world right now. And if we do that with the right kind of people, by the way, that's why I picked on COP. COP is not a load of academics getting together with our conference badges, because we know what happens when we mm -hmm. do that, and it's all about the... I've got a pile of them hanging on the shelf <laughs> over there, yeah. My office is the same, and it's all about the after party, let's be honest. That's coming out of the podcast. But um, no, I genuinely think it's when you get some of the most interesting times I've had at universities, and when, when we've entertained people you might scoff at, you know, uh, Arab princes... Um, industrialists, sometimes very senior politicians. They you know they come. They're making their, getting their shilling. They have a reason to visit the campus. But you get them, you know, places like LSE are good at this. They get big thinkers and they get 
big players. Mm. They get them on campus and then the sparks fly. Mm. Um, and I have no problem with that at all. I think that's exactly what we should be doing. Oxford Union's just experienced that with uh, Catherine Stock. And, and that's going to go on and should go on. Like I said, that, that's where we can raise the flag again. And maybe, just maybe, that 13, 14-year-old who's busy being pushed and pulled by parents, school and elsewhere, that you've got to become a doctor, you've got to become an engineer, you've got to become another lawyer, might actually think, you know what? I want to go to university and do history because I need to understand why those people are saying that. Or I really need to read the Iliad now because I just don't think the way we're thinking now is new. I think we've been Mm -hmm. repeating the same problem. And whatever it might be. Or, by the way, the one that says, I want to be an engineer because I want to stop all this non-science flying around and come up with a practical solution. Yeah, well, we can only hope, right? Yeah. Yep. Well, we, I mean, we could we could, and probably will once we stop the recorder, we could talk about this for, for hours and hours. But um, this has been, been fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for your time, your reflections. Um, and hopefully we'll get a chance to, to talk to you again in due course. Thank Thanks, you. Chris.